This month we're talking about being exiles, being sojourners. What does that mean? What does it mean to, to live in a world where the people in our culture around us uh, don't understand us sometimes, don't think the way that we think, uh, sometimes even may even treat us poorly because of the way that we think, because of the way that we talk, because of what we believe, or because of how we live, and how we should live in this world, how God calls His people to live in a world that are surrounded by unbelievers. And so we've talked about how exiles, both in a very literal sense and in the metaphor that we're talking about have a tendency to do one of two things, either conform or assimilate into the culture around them and to become like the people around them, or else isolate themselves from the people around them and just kind of hide out and protect themselves, kind of build a hedge around themselves. But God calls his people to be faithful not only in our conduct and doing His will, but also faithful to our calling and to make an impact on the community around us. So we've been looking at 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9-12, through 12, and talking about four principles that we find there about how to live as God's faithful exiles in a world that sometimes doesn't understand us. So number one, we've talked about remember who you are. Do you remember who we are? Do you remember what first Peter chapter two, verse nine says that we are? We are a chosen what? Race. We are a royal priesthood. We are a holy nation. We are people for God's own possession, right? We belong to God. We are his chosen race. We are his royal priesthood. We are his holy nation. And that's not an identity, again, that is achieved by our own goodness or works. It is an identity that is received through faith in Jesus Christ, through what Jesus did at the cross. And so we understand that if we're going to be today on a Sunday or tomorrow on a Monday when we're at work or at school or when we're with our neighbors, if we're going to be the people that God wants us to be, then we have to remember who we are. We have to write our new identity on our hearts. Number two, we talked about last week that we need to proclaim His excellencies. We need to tell the world how excellent God is in His character, who God is, and in His deeds, what God has done. So that's our job. That's why we were made a Chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that we would proclaim His excellencies. But then, this morning we're going to talk about number three. We also need to abstain from the passions of the flesh. That sounds like a fun sermon, right? Abstain from the passions of the flesh. Before we dig into that, I want us to think about a couple of modern perspectives, or maybe not so modern, but perspectives that Christians have tended to have that I think we need to be aware of and be careful of. First of all, I think that for a long time, Christians have at least given the impression, whether or not we actually thought this is something else, but we've at least given the impression that we don't believe in having fun, right? Maybe you grew up feeling like that was Christianity, right? Christians don't believe in having fun, that we don't believe in pleasure or enjoyment, that the only way to live a good Christian life is to pretty much be miserable, right? And we need to get rid of everything that isn't fun or enjoyable. 
And a couple of things have happened because that has been the general impression. One, we've tended to, to run people off, right? We've tended to people to say, well, I don't want to be a Christian. If being a Christian means I have to be miserable all the time, if being a Christian means I can't enjoy myself, if being a Christian means that there is no pleasure, well, I don't want anything to do with that, right? But it has also cultivated other sins. Maybe not the kind of sins we think of, when we think of sin, but it's cultivated sins like pride. It's cultivated sins like judgmentalism and hypocrisy, right? Sins that are obvious to the outsider sometimes more than they are to us. And so we understand that sometimes this becomes the general idea of what it means to live a good Christian life is to reject things that are enjoyable and fun and pleasurable But I think that there's a a second thing that we need to be careful of that may have come about because of this way of thinking. It seems like today we've gone to another extreme where we say, listen, Christianity and living a good spiritual life isn't about, it isn't about not having pleasure or even abstaining from pleasure. It's about authenticity, right? That's kind of the modern way of thinking of spirituality. And to be a really spiritual person, it's just about being real. Don't be a hypocrite. Don't pretend to be somebody that you're not. Just be real. And so now we we don't tend to hear sermons or talk about repentance or abstinence from sin. Now we talk about authenticity, being real. Just admit that we're all sinners. We're all wicked. We all do bad things. Now, certainly I'm glad that we've moved away from the story that we were telling ourselves that God doesn't want us to have any fun, that God doesn't want us to enjoy ourselves and, and have pleasure because God invented pleasure, right? I mean, God made enjoyment, right? And so God wants us to to be happy and enjoy things. He created all things for our enjoyment, and, and that's good. But I think that there's a huge danger, too, in where we've gone from there. I think that there's a danger in telling ourselves that Christians are no different than anyone else. Wait a second, what do you mean by that? When we say things like, well, Christians aren't any better than anybody else. Wait a second. I mean, you could say that, and and we say things like that all the time, don't we? Christians aren't any better than anybody else. Or uh, there's an old country song that says, you know, the only difference between sinners and saints is one is forgiven and the other one ain't, right? So, is that true? Is that the only difference between Christians and non-Christians? Certainly, we understand that we need to guard against pride and hypocrisy, don't we? We need to admit that we've sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We need to admit that as far as deserving goes, we don't deserve God's love. We deserve God's wrath and punishment. It's only by grace that we've been saved. But if we're not actually living better lives than we were before, if we're not actually living better lives than the world around us, then something is wrong. Something is wrong if there really is no difference between the way you live and the way the unbelieving world lives. Something is certainly wrong because that's not Christianity. While I appreciate an emphasis on authenticity and being real with each other and admitting that we struggle and that we sin, we also have to be very careful that we don't downplay just how significant and how deadly is immorality 
and sin. And so that's what we're going to talk about this morning. That if we're going to live as God's faithful people in the world, and not only be faithful in our conduct, but faithful to our calling to make an impression on the world and bring the world out of darkness and into His marvelous light, just as we've been brought out of darkness and into His marvelous light, then we have to abstain from the passions of the flesh. Because church, listen, very few things undermine evangelism like blatant immorality of Christians. That when we go and live just like everybody else and the world sees that and then we call them to Jesus, then our message, the message of Jesus is completely undermined. So let's look at the book of First Peter. We're going to start in chapter 1. I want to read a few verses before we get to our primary text. And remember that Peter is writing to Christians that are spread out, many of whom probably are, are former, or they're Jewish by descent. Some of them are, are most likely Gentile, of course. But he's writing to them because they are suffering for being Christians. That they're living in a world that doesn't accept them and doesn't like them and is mistreating them because they are Christians. And so he writes to them, and one of the themes through the book is don't give them any reason, any legitimate reason to hate you. Don't give them any legitimate reason to oppose you. You have to be better. You have to lead better lives, better than you led before. Better than you're tempted to lead and better than the Gentile world. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear, with reverence toward God throughout the time of your exile. Look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. We're going to go through these quickly so we can get to our primary text. First Peter chapter 2, 1 through 3. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that it by, by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Again, we, we do have to reject hypocrisy, right? We have to reject things like pride and pretending that we're better than we really are. We do have to be authentic, and we do have to be real. So please don't hear me and say that, that we don't have to be authentic, that we don't have to be real, that it's okay to be hypocrites. That's not what we're saying. But what the Bible does call us to, what God calls us to, is authentically living as better people, better than we were before. When we repent of our sins, that means we are changed. We'll talk more about that in a second. First Peter chapter 2 and verse 16. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Look at chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. 1 Peter 4, 1 through 5. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. That's a good phrase right there. That's rich, isn't it? 
That that's our goal, is to get to the point where we are living no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Where we live to do not what we feel like doing, what our body wants to do, what sensuality tells us to do, but we live to do God's will. Verse 3. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised. They are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. See, again, we were right to be turned off by self-righteousness and hypocrisy and pride, and there's still enough of that to go around, isn't there? We are right to preach against self-righteousness and pride and hypocrisy and judgmentalism. We're right to preach against those things But we're wrong if we don't constantly remind ourselves that there is a coming judgment. That there is a standard of living that we are called to. And that if we're going to live as God's faithful exiles in the world, that we've got to live lives that are no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Now, Again, 1 Peter 2, 9 through 12 is our primary text this month, and we're going to look at verse 11 this morning. 1 Peter 2 and verse 11. Peter says, Beloved, I urge you, I plead with you, I call you as sojourners and exiles. And again, we talked about before, that word doesn't mean, those words don't imply that we're isolated from the world, that we just build up a community where we build a hedge around ourselves and where we hide out. It, it, it implies a resident alien. It, it, it implies that we're from somewhere else or our citizenship belongs in heaven, that we're strangers here, but that we have taken up residence among the world, in the world, beside the world that we know the world, that we're involved with and we work with and we're neighbors with and we go to school with and we we see them and we know them, but we live differently. I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Let's break that down just a little bit, okay? Let's start with that phrase, the passions of the flesh. Been thinking a lot about that this week, the flesh, and what the Bible means when it talks about the flesh. It seems to me when, when the Bible talks about the flesh, so often what the biblical authors are talking about is our humanity from the perspective of our sinfulness, from the perspective of our tendency our inclination that when we're presented with forbidden fruit, what do we want to do? We want to touch it. We want to eat it, right? That is 
the flesh. That is our fleshly nature. That is what we have a tendency to do. When somebody says, I even did this with teenagers one time. I, I put something in the, in our, our teen room one time when I was a youth minister and I, I drew a circle on a board and I put, I, I think it was a balloon or something in the middle and I wrote, do not touch and drew arrows to it. You know, don't touch this and hung it on the board. There was absolutely no reason whatsoever for anybody to touch it. But what did they all want to do when they came in? Touch it, right? Whether they touched it or not, they wanted to touch it, right? Why? Because it was forbidden. Somebody said, don't touch it, and you just want to touch it, right? When somebody says, hey, this is really good, but you can't have any. You stay away. This, Don't touch it. Don't look at it. Don't eat it. And our flesh is, but I, but I want it. I'm missing out on something. I want that. Our flesh desires. But there is more to us than our sinful appetites. Yes, this is a part of our humanity. This is a part of who we are. But this is kind of why one reason I like to steer away from the phrase sinful nature. Because it, it makes it sound like that's just who we are. We don't have any choice in the matter. And that's all of who we are that encompasses humanity's identity. But there's so much more to us than just our sinful appetite. But make no mistake, we have a sinful, fleshly appetite, don't we? We know that there are things, there are behaviors, there are attitudes, there are deeds that are wrong, and we have a nature, a, a, an inclination, a tendency to long for those. We have an appetite for those things that are wrong, that are forbidden, that are immoral. But, but look at the word that comes right before that, abstain. Abstain from the passions of the flesh. That's a powerful word, isn't it? Because we have a tendency to just simply resign ourselves to sin, don't we? We have a tendency to say, well, that's just, you know, I'm just a human and human sin and that's just what we do and I don't really have any choice in the matter. Yeah, right. Who told you that? Where did that come from? You don't have any choice in the matter. Who said that? That's not true. Don't believe that. God's word says abstain. It says don't. It says restrain yourself. Exercise self-control. Yes, you have fleshly passions. Yes, you have an appetite and a desire for things that are wrong. And you see something. You see a body that you shouldn't be looking at. And you have an appetite for that. Yes, absolutely. You're in the flesh. We all have that appetite. But you also have the ability to say no. And Christians, who is it that dwells within us, that gives us life and gives us power to abstain from the passions of the flesh? Isn't it the Spirit of God? Don't we have the Spirit of God who dwells within us to empower us, to equip us, to say no to fleshly passions? So let's stop believing the story. I don't have any choice in the matter. I'm just a human being, and that's just the way human beings are. Yes, I I understand we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We all deserve death, and it wasn't for the grace of God. We'd be lost. But now that we're in Jesus Christ, it doesn't mean that the passions of our flesh suddenly disappear. You will have these passions, these desires, these appetites, these inclinations, these tendencies for the rest of your time in the flesh. But you're also told to abstain, to don't indulge these appetites, to say no. 
to say, I don't live like that anymore. That's not me anymore. Used to, that's who I was. That was my identity. I was dead in my sins and my trespasses in which I walked. I understand that. But now Jesus has buried me with him and he's raised me up to walk in newness of life. Now I'm part of a chosen race. Now I'm part of a royal priesthood. Now I'm part of a holy nation. Now I'm a people that belong to God. Now the Spirit of God dwells within me. Now, understand, it doesn't mean that any of us are doing it perfectly, but we need to understand that this is what we're striving towards, and this is what is possible. At every temptation, there's no temptation that we face that isn't common to man, Paul says in 1 Corinthians. And every time we're tempted, there's a way of what? Escape. That we can say, no, I won't do that. I won't say that. I won't watch that. I won't go there. I won't do what you want me to do. I I have a desire to. I have a passion to. I have an appetite to. But I'm going to say no. And I'm going to abstain. Why? Because I've been called to a higher way of living. And the stakes are far too high. And I will not go down that road. Look at the next phrase. So abstain from the passions of the flesh, which what? Which wage war against your soul. First, it's interesting that Peter says here that, that it is our passions of our flesh which wage war against our soul, right? It is our appetites and our desires. James says the same thing, that it's when our desires drag us away and entice us that we come into sin. We think the war is out there. We think that we're being waged war against by the people out there. And that's not to say that there's not demonic forces and Satan and all these things, but but the battle is here. It's here. It's in my mind, in my heart. It's with my appetite. It's with my desires. So stop thinking that that it's just the, the world. Because your worldly friends and the people in your community, your schoolmates, co-workers, people that you're on boards with, they're not your enemy. Our enemy isn't flesh and blood. If anything, they're prisoners of war. They're still prisoners of war. They're still in darkness and they need to be brought out of darkness into God's marvelous light. Stop going to war against them. The real war is in your heart, is in your mind. These passions of your flesh that are waging war against your soul. Secondly, think about the idea of that. Waging war. I mean, this isn't a little thing, is it? This isn't just some insignificant thing. There is a battle. There is a war. There is a struggle. And that's funny, is that we say struggle all the time, right? We say, well, I struggle with this sin or I struggle with that sin. Do you? Do you really struggle? Do I? Is it really a struggle? Because a struggle implies that I'm putting up a fight, right? A struggle implies that I'm saying no. And sometimes I lose that struggle, right? But a struggle implies that I'm fighting against it. If we're always giving in to sin, If every time 
our appetite for something rears its head and we do what we feel like doing, that's not a struggle with sin. That's a surrender to sin. And far too often what we call struggle is really surrender. We do have to struggle against sin. We cannot surrender to sin. Which brings up a couple interesting points that I want to explore. We can go back a slide if that's okay. I want to get there yet. A couple interesting points that I want to point out. One is sometimes when we're looking for somebody to go to to help us with our struggles, when we're looking for somebody to encourage us, when we're, when we're saying, you know, I need to find an older Christian who can help me. Sometimes we say, well, I, I don't want to go to him. I don't want to go to her. Why? Because she, they don't struggle with the same thing I struggle with. How do you know? Maybe they're just better at it than we are, right? Maybe they're just struggling better than we are. Maybe they just don't give into it. Don't assume that just because somebody doesn't sin the way that we sin doesn't mean they don't struggle with the same temptation that we struggle with. Perhaps they're just have become better at abstaining from that particular passion of the flesh. Which reminds us that when we are in a battle, if we're truly struggling against something, if we say, I struggle with pornography, or I, I struggle with my anger, or I struggle with, with people of the opposite sex, or I struggle with this, or I struggle with that, and we say, I struggle with these things, then if we're realizing that these passions of the flesh are waging war against our soul, then we need to utilize every single resource at our disposal to abstain from the passions of the flesh. Which means I need to get counseling if I need counseling. I need to get mentoring if I need to get mentoring. I need to pour God's word into my heart, into my mind. I need to be spending hours in prayer. I need to be fasting. I need to be with my church family. I don't need to surrender to it. I need to struggle against it. I need to fight against it to abstain from the passions of the flesh. Because church, here's what's at stake. Not only our soul, which that word, by the way, in the Bible usually means our whole being, our whole existence, our heart and our mind, our life. Your life is on the line here. But so is the life of the church. We've probably all known times when preachers, elders maybe, church leaders have had some lapse in moral judgment and have done something that has brought shame and reproach on them. And we know how devastating it is for them personally and for their families. But it also affects the entire church, doesn't it? And it affects how the church is seen in the community. We need to realize that it isn't just preachers and elders and leaders that need to pay attention to how they're living and what they're doing and what they're saying. What they're putting on Facebook or Twitter, what, how, how they're, how they're treating people, everything that they do. It isn't just church leaders that need to pay attention to that. It's every single one of us. Because we have a calling, a calling to go out into the world and help people to understand that Jesus not only saves, but He changes. He gives us a better life. Because if we're calling people to Jesus, and we're saying Jesus is better, 
Jesus is better than whatever you have now. Jesus is better. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. He will save you. He will strengthen you. He will forgive you. He will give you eternal life. Then our lives have to back that up, don't they? They have to be able to look at our lives and say, how is it any different than mine? How is your life any different than mine? Yes, we all struggle with sin. And we all will struggle with sin. But we need to struggle and not surrender. And that's what I want us to remember this week. Because perhaps this morning there's somebody that is on the brink of surrendering. You've been struggling. You've been abstaining. You've been resisting. You've been exercising self-control. Or maybe you haven't. But one way or the other, you know that you're on the brink, just giving in and giving up. And I want to tell you the stakes are too high, number one. But number two, you are capable of struggling and not surrendering. You are capable of abstaining. Why? Because if you're a Christian, then the Spirit of God dwells within you and you are not alone. You are not just a chosen race by yourself. You're a part of a chosen race. You're a part of a royal priesthood. You're a part of a holy nation. You're a part of a people who belong to God. And we are in this together to struggle together, to fight together, to abstain together, to resist together. Let's stop telling ourselves that there's no difference between people in Christ and people in the world. There is a huge difference on who dwells within us, what our identity is, and there should be a huge difference in how we live. And if that difference isn't evident to you, then it's probably not evident to your neighbors and your co-workers and your family. It's time we make some changes. If you need help, then utilize every single resource that is available to you to struggle against sin, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, because not only is your soul at stake, but so is the reputation of Jesus' church, Jesus' people. And if we can help you, if we can help you put Christ on in baptism so that you can begin this journey, or we can encourage you to pray for you. There's a room in the back. The elders would love to pray with you after services. Or you can come forward. There's not a single person here that is sinless, but we're all struggling to sin less. If we can help you, won't you come forward now as we stand and sing?